worship team thought that after a uh, after a message on uh, Satan and on suffering, that we would need some worship time after the message in order to get our focus back where it belonged on the Lord. And so that's what we're going to do. Two things before I begin this message. One uh, came from the men's retreat uh, yesterday. Would like to tell you that uh, your men are just absolutely miserable without you. They're not having any fun. They miss you so badly that it's just uh, excruciating for them. Would like to tell you that. <clears throat> Those guys are like little kids. They stay. They're out playing basketball till all hours of the night. Uh, they, yeah, you know, somebody was playing double decker pinochle, whatever that is. Till like four o'clock at night. It's great to watch those guys. Um, secondly, on a more serious note, really, I hope you will um, consider. Now, I hope you'll come to the prayer thing next Saturday morning. Um, my, my good friend Mark Rutland, who's pastor of Calvary Assembly, uh, the Lord just kind of gave him this vision, and he called a few other pastors together and said. Is this the Holy Spirit or is this just me being weird? And, and we all prayed about it and said, no, we think it's the Holy Spirit. I don't know why it's just for men. It's just part of what God gave him for this time. Um, and, and I believe that God wants us to take some leadership in the city. But if you would meet me in this parking lot next Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, we'll just all go down together. All right? I know the thing says from 8 till noon, but it doesn't really start until like 8.45. And so... If you'll meet me here at 8 o'clock, we'll all go down together and just stand and pray for the city. Uh, it's just so important that we, as men, begin to address the spiritual atmosphere of this city. So would you come and meet me here? I'd appreciate it. All right, now. Sermon on... I know you've all been waiting for this. A sermon on the theology of suffering. God's leash on Satan. Let me read just two verses for you out of the 8th chapter of Romans, and you can read the rest of it because it says the same thing, only more wonderfully so. Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Now let me caution you very strongly here. Most people so fragment that verse that they say just the opposite of what it's really saying. Most people just repeat the words, well, all things work together for good. That's not what it says. I want you to see the important determinative qualifier. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That's one segment of humanity. That's not for everybody. Not everything works together for good for everybody. It's only to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That He might be, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Therefore, it gives you the purpose why God allows all kinds of things to happen to our life so that we can be more like Jesus. Now, Remember this. God has a leash on Satan. As we go into this series on spiritual warfare, God has a leash on Satan. And the leash is not so short that he can't get to you. Satan can get to you. The leash, the leash though, is short enough that Satan can never get to the purposes of God for your life. Satan 
can never get to the purposes of God for your life. If you love God and you're called according to his purpose, Satan does not have access. He can never wreck your life to the extent that God's purpose for you will be thwarted. Now, you can rest on that, and I want you to rest on that. Now, as we're going in, next week we begin the fundamentals of spiritual warfare. So let's review quickly where we've been. We've said three basic things in a lot of ways. Number one, that if you're going to fight spiritual warfare, you have to, from the very beginning, determine that you're going to believe God's word and not your own opinion. If you go in trying to fight Satan on your own opinion, you are going to be so frustrated and so confused that you're going to give up. You might as well draw big concentric circles on yourself. You are an easy target for Satan. Unless you can stand with God's word, you will fall. Number two, we have said that it's very important that you realize that there is a real and spiritual enemy. That it's not just the mistakes we made or it's, it's not just the sin we have in ourselves that confuse our lives. That there is another side with a strategy, with a power, with a deception, and he's coming after you. He wants you. And once you have made a decision for Jesus Christ, he's coming after you big time because he knows the difference you can make for God in this world. So therefore, don't have any doubt that this is a man problem. It is a spiritual problem. However, on your way into spiritual warfare, realize that there are ways, this is the third thing we've said, that we sabotage our own lives and Satan can just sit there and laugh. It's not a spiritual, not everything is a spiritual battle. You know, when Christians get all, all stoked up for spiritual warfare, they think everything that bad happens to them is because Satan's making it happen. Now, you're giving them way too much credit. Satan is limited. And he'll come after you big time. But... He will not have to touch you if you will destroy your own life. And that's what he's hoping for. And that's the course that many people are on. They don't need spiritual warfare. They're doing a good job of wrecking themselves. So before you ever get to a conclusion that Satan is attacking me, you have to first ask this question, have I attacked myself? Have I done this to myself? And if you've done it to yourself, take responsibility and let God help you fix it. Because if you think you've done something to yourself, but you can fix it alone, <laughs> get ready for another big one. If you did it to yourself, you're not going to fix it alone. You'll do it to yourself again. God's going to intervene. So therefore, okay, now let's go into the spiritual warfare. And let's go into why it is so important on the way in to have a solid theology. That's what this morning's about. I hope you don't come in here plan to be entertained. I hope that you came in willing to be taught. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some intellectual work for you to get through this with me. As a matter of fact, you may want to plan, plan right now to, to buy the tape because I don't think we're going to catch everything on the way through. It is so important. When you are going into a situation you know is going to be a battle and a struggle, when you are going to be worn down physically, when you are going to be frustrated emotionally, and when you're going to be attacked spiritually to have a solid foundational theology that you can keep going back to and say, but wait a minute, the Bible says this. And so therefore, I don't need to be confused at this point. This is what I can count on. That is so important. If you have that foundation, if you have that touchstone, then you will be able 
to fight spiritually. But if everything throws you into double-mindedness and you're trying to figure out how the, how the universe is arranged every time you get attacked, then you're going to be, of all people, the most unstable. So let's talk about the basic theology of suffering this morning. And let's talk about where it comes from. So that when you get into it, and some of you are in the thick of it right now, I know you are, you're going through some really rough times. This, you listen this morning. Because if you don't, when you get into it, you get frustrated and you start striking out at everybody around you. You even try and shoot up, you know, at God. You get mad at God, you know. You say, you know, let's, let's eliminate God from this system. He's not doing me any good. Let's eliminate God. That's what pain does to people. You always hurt the ones you love. There's an old song like that. Why? Because you hurt. So therefore, if you know where you're going and the reason for it, you're a lot less likely to strike out at people who are on your side. You know Stonewall Jackson? One of the greatest, one of the greatest Confederate uh, generals. Robert E. Lee said, call him my right arm. He was the most brilliant general, uh, uh, Confederate general they had. He built a war machine that was so effective. And these, these guys, just when they saw movement, they just turned around and they plugged it. Right after the biggest battle of his life, he was beyond the line. They had encircled General Hooker, who was, a, who was a great Union general, defeated them decisively. He was on his way back, coming through some bushes. Some of his troops were around, heard the noise, turned around, and shot him three times. Didn't die of the bullets, but he died of the pneumonia that followed. He had built a war machine that killed him. And that's exactly what can happen when you get in spiritual warfare. If you don't know what you're shooting at, you tend to shoot at everything. You tend to get jumpy. And so that's why a solid theology is so necessary. Now, let's talk about why we have problems thinking about suffering in this culture. First, there is a major problem with this culture in our view of suffering at all. Helmut Tillichy was a, was a famous... Uh, preacher, theologian, who went through uh, World War II Germany and saw all of the evil over there. And he came over to visit the United States. And on his way out of the United States, the reporters asked him, what is one of the main shortcomings that you see in our nation? And he didn't even hesitate. He said, Americans have such an inadequate view of suffering. And it's true. You know, we really believe that life shouldn't have suffering. That normal life doesn't have suffering. Dick said this a couple of weeks ago. Well, normal life does have suffering. It is more normal to suffer than to not suffer. That's physically as well as emotionally. I was reading a, a, a preventative uh, health uh, magazine the other day, um, or how to prevent illness. And there, were, there was a physician in there that said, we are so afraid of pain in this culture that people have blocked out of their mind that it's normal to have chronic physical pain. That's normal. Um, now, if, certainly if it, if it persists over a long period of time in the same spot, you ought to get it checked out. But it just reminded me that we really don't think we ought to suffer. So therefore, we are surprised and indignant when we do suffer. Secondly, we have 
not only a cultural taboo, I don't want to suffer, I'm going to deny it, the norm is not to suffer, and so therefore I won't concentrate on suffering. We have a faulty, listen to this, hermeneutical system. You, you ever check out your hermeneutical system? Well, check it out. It's part of the problem. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. And when we read Scripture, we get confused as to what the Scripture is really saying because in the Scripture, it seems to say sometimes that God causes suffering. And then sometimes it seems to say that Satan causes suffering. Well, that's pretty confusing. In the first place, how could God cause suffering? Doesn't he want our good? Isn't he, isn't he loving us? Why would he make us suffer? Does that make any sense? That doesn't make any sense. And we read a lot of things in Scripture that really confuse us. This, uh, there, now, a lot of these are written down, uh, but just let me read a couple that are kind of confusing for us. Uh, out of Exodus chapter 7, the Lord is going to uh, uh, go down into Egypt and he's telling Pharaoh to, or I mean uh, Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And then he says something totally weird, something that works at cross purposes with what he wants, with what his first desire is. Look at this, it says, <clears throat> you shall speak all that I command you. Now verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my sins and my wonders in the land. He says the same thing in Second Thessalonians. He talks about people who have turned away from the Lord. And he says, And for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. Does that sound like God to you? In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Boy, that doesn't sound like the God I've been taught about. Then, when you get real theological, see, when you get, when you get educated theologically, for a while, you can do this. You can say, well, the Hebrews just had a, had a kind of a weird way of writing and they made no differentiation between primary and secondary causation. And so what that means is they were so radically monotheistic that they charged everything to God. You know, if a, if a spirit came upon Saul, then they said, well, God sent an evil spirit on Saul. But God really didn't do that. That came from the other side. You just got to read it like that. They made no difference between primary and secondary causation. Now, part of that's true. If there were a football game and there were a quarterback that were just just incredible quarterback, always on target, and they were having a rough time in the game. See? It was very close. And he sends this tight end down and in. Now, there's all kinds of receivers going up, but this quarterback who sees everything and knows everything can see this receiver going in, and out of the corner of his eyes, he sees a defensive player about to make an illegal hit. And a hit before the ball gets there on this guy that's coming down for the pass. So that's the very one he chooses to pass it to. And he throws this bullet pass. And just before the ball gets there, this guy gets hit in the back. He opens up his arms like this. The ball hits him in the helmet and he gets knocked out. Well, they cart this guy off and they bring another guy in. Now they get a 15-yard penalty. So the team's further down, 
And the team is so indignant that that happens that they run over the other team. If that were written up in a Hebrew newspaper, this is the way it would read. Quarterback knocks out tight end. See? There isn't all of it there. If you look into it, you can see the reasoning. You can see why it happened. You can see all of it for good. But, but you didn't go into the secondary causation. Well, as the theology of the Bible develops, you can see how Satan has taken what God made good and he deteriorates that. He perverts it. And so you can say, well, that's not really God's fault. That's Satan's fault. We can blame it all on Satan. But hold up. As soon as you start blaming all of the evil on Satan, what do you build up? You are building up an evil that is just as powerful as the good. can't do that. You know what? If you are to believe in a biblical theology, you have, sooner or later, have to come to the point where you say, God permits evil to the point that he uses it. He does. If not in a primary way, in a secondary way, not only authorizes it, but authors it. Now you say, how can you even say that about God? You have to say it in a larger context of God's purpose. Now, let me tell you the two theologies we have. So far we have a faulty cultural view. We have a faulty hermeneutical system. Now let me tell you about the faulty theology that we have. In this culture, we have two radically different theologies, but we have a lot more trouble with one of them than the other. Here we go. Down at this end, we have radical Arminianism. Radical Arminianism is basically humanism that says everything is dependent on man. That basically God's given us a good choice and Satan's given us an evil choice and God's just kind of setting up in heaven and waiting to see what we choose. And if we choose right, then everything will come out all right, but it's all up to us. The responsibility is all on our shoulders. Now, what you really have there is a system of dualism. Because if God is not involved or, or is not tremendously involved to make his, his side come out right and, and Satan is battling and, and, it's, and it's a toss-up until we decide, you have, a, you have a picture of what we call a dualism. In the Bible, there is no dualism. God is sovereign. God is God. God's in control. That's that. Another problem you have and this is especially true in radically charismatic churches. You have people who are searching for ways to unlock a combination to God. If something doesn't go their way, well, it's because God's up there saying, well, my hands are tied because you didn't pray the right prayer, or you didn't have enough faith, or you didn't do this, or you didn't do that. And so therefore, as soon as you respond in a way that will free me up to act, then I'll come down and rescue you. So you have people running all over the place acting crazy trying to get the right combination to God because he's trapped until we can release him. What kind of weenie God is that? That's a weenie God. And it's driving us nuts. We feel like our, the whole world is our responsibility. If we don't get it right, God can't be God. Stupid system. Well, look at this one down here. Here's just the opposite. We're into hyper-Calvinism here. Hyper-Calvinism is a system that says there is no real free will, that God has this all arranged, it's all wound up in one big machine, and God has already predetermined everything. 
As a matter of fact, it is so predetermined that God himself is a prisoner of his own system. God can't respond because he's already set up everything in a way that he needed it to be set up. And so therefore, it's all fatalism. Ironically, you don't have a weak God down there and a strong God down here. You have a weak God down here. Here's a, here's a God that can't even get out of his own system. He's a prisoner to his own logic. So therefore, what do you do? Well, usually when I give you these two extremes, you end up right somewhere in the middle, don't you? Watch this. Here's the right theological position. Okay? Right here. You take one step away from hyper-Calvinism and you come to the place where you really believe that God is in control, that he has everything planned, and that he is involved in every event in order to make his own plans for your life to come about. You know why? Because if you get down at this end, and you start to think it's all up to you, and you think God's just sitting back and God's trapped and God is not able to intervene, and whatever's happening is a surprise to God. Oh, golly, I didn't know that was going to happen. Now I've got to respond to that. You've got some weenie God. And that's going to do you absolutely no good for your security and spiritual warfare. You have to believe that God knows what he's doing and that what you're going through has a purpose. When you say, God, is this really necessary? You've got to hear the answer, yeah. Because I am trying to accomplish something in your life I am working in this event. This is no accident. This is part of my plan. Now come along with me. Very important. Now, you say, why would God do that? Why would he incorporate suffering into his plan? Why couldn't he just... Well, let's go back to the purpose, shall we? What is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of our existence? Some of you know a creed that says... The purpose of life is to love God and to glorify Him forever. Pretty close. Pretty close. The purpose of life is summed up in the great commandment that Jesus taught us. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. That is the purpose of your life. Now let me ask you a question. When people love you, is it more gratifying for people to love you because you have paid them off and made it easy for them to love you? Or is it more gratifying for someone to love you even though it's difficult, even though they see who you are, but they still choose to love you? Which love is more mature and more gratifying? Father and a little boy walking along the ocean, and there's a boat dock. And they're, they're, they're watching this boat load up its cargo. And there's all kinds of neat toys. I mean, there's cars going onto this thing and computers going onto this thing and pinball machine, pool table. I mean, it's a big toy boat. The little boy looks out there and says, Dad, if you could trade me for everything on that boat, would you do it? The dad said, well, no, son, I wouldn't. The little boy says, really, dad, it's okay. It's okay. You can tell me because it won't hurt my feelings. Are you sure you wouldn't trade me for everything on that boat? 
The dad said, no, I wouldn't. And the little boy said, why not? Couldn't you love everything on that boat? And the dad says, yeah, but it couldn't love me back. That's where God is. He created us so that we could love him back. Now, there are two things that are important in love. Number one, that it is strong enough to overcome adversity. That is a very important quality of love. When you have someone you know will love you no matter what. Mothers are a perfect example. I mean, most of us were booger heads from day one. And our mothers knew it. They didn't kid themselves. I mean, I, I, a lot of parents these days are just mm, off in dream world, you know, saying, well, my kids aren't doing this and that. Man, my, my mother knew exactly what a creep I was. She thought I hung the moon, even though I was a jerk. That's a mother. It's a mother. Well, that kind of love is so important. Not that hides from sin, but that treats sin realistically and loves anyhow. Well, what if there are impediments? Isn't that important to God? You bet it's important to God. There's even another thing, though. It's not just the type of love we have, but it is who is loving is very important. Who is it that loves me? What quality of person? What... what uh, um, what kind of... of, of uh, Love comes out of that particular person. What character they, do they have? That makes a difference too. Now, let me give you the weirdest verse in the Bible. Everybody ready for this? You all know the shortest verse, don't you? Jesus wept. That's right. Anybody know the weirdest verse? I'll point it out to you. Matthew 4, 1. Look it, look it up. Somebody may call you sometimes. Just say, what's the weirdest verse you've ever read in the Bible? Let me show it to you. Weirdest. It's a contradiction. It makes no sense. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, what sense does that make? God's leading His own Son to be confronted and maybe defeated from Jesus' perspective, he's not sure, by the devil. What's he trying to do? He's trying to do the same thing with Jesus that he's trying to do with us. It's the whole reason we have to go through spiritual warfare. There are several things that can happen in our lives and to our lives that can only happen through suffering. And in no other way. Let me give you a few of them. Number one, when we go through suffering, we pay attention to the correction that God's trying to arrange for our lives. Did you ever notice that the only time you make a significant and immediate change in your life is when you're in enough pain? Did you ever notice that? Whoever changes their life significantly, just tripping along, life's going okay. You say, well, okay. I mean, the most we do is to go on a diet. Continually. You know? Tomorrow, 
Boy, this is it. This is really it. That's the biggest issue we've got in our lives, our weight. When you are in tremendous pain in your life, you make major decisions. Pain is a corrective. It's a friend. Those people who have not uh, experienced pain are the people who are in the most danger. You missionaries that have been out on the field and you've, you've seen people with leprosy and the and the feelings gone from their hands, you know what a great deal of danger they're in because a rat can gnaw off their fingers. They never know about it. They can't feel it. Periodically, there is a, there's a child that is born with a serious defect in the central nervous system to where the pain is blocked and it can't get back. And you say, how wonderful to live life without pain. How dangerous. You would never know if you had a heart attack. You would never know if... Uh, um, there was some major um, cut on your your foot or some break in your ankle. You could just keep walking on it. You'd never know. Pain is your friend. And when you are going through suffering, if you do not ask yourself, God, what should I correct? Is there something you're trying to teach me? You are wasting a high payment of your life. You are wasting what you are expending on that without getting anything out of it. Every time you suffer, ask God this question. God, what do you want me to fix? What do you want me to correct? What do you want me to do differently? There may be an answer there. And that will make the pain worth it. Number two, God allows pain so that He can deepen our character. It's one thing to have a dog love you. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing to have a dog. We have a, we have a dog that's dumber than a rock. Every time we go out of the room and come back in, she thinks it's the first time. She thinks you've been gone for weeks. I mean, she'll hop up and just get so excited. You know, went to the bathroom, all right? Calm down. She just thinks that's the greatest thing in the whole world. Well, it's neat. That's neat. It's nice to be loved like that from anything. But quite frankly, she does that to everybody. It's not just me. I mean, a stranger could go out of the room, come back in, have the same reaction. You know? There's not a lot of depth there. Not a lot that you can really be gratified by. People are different. God wants to deepen our characters so that when we love, it means everything to the other person because we are loving as wise and deep people. There is nothing that deepens you like pain and suffering and going through it. The wisest, kindest, most loving, deepest people I've ever met in my life are the people who have suffered the most. I have never yet met a person that had any depth at all who was sheltered and pampered their whole life. Just never met anybody like that. You can get people who think they know a lot, but don't know a lot. You can get people who are good people, but they don't know anything yet. Why do you think God let Job suffer? Huh? I mean, Satan came and said, Look, God, see, let, me, let me just turn to it. Job chapter 1. Satan came and said, there was a day that, that everybody, uh, uh, all, uh, the 
the Bible says, verse 6, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Sons of God, Elohim, uh, angelic beings, you know, spirit beings. It doesn't mean that Jesus was the son of God and Satan was, was his brother. It doesn't mean that. <clears throat> it's a generic term. Came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Don't you find it kind of curious that God himself put Satan up to getting on Job's case? Job was a great guy. He was righteous in all his ways. He was sinless in all his ways. Why wouldn't God just kind of go, <laughs> Never mind. Well, that's great. See ya. Why would he point out Job? This is at God's instigation. And Job tells the truth. Now watch this. Spiritual warfare, Satan usually uses the truth to deceive us. He's not so dumb he's going to tell you a lie. You can spot a lie just like that. He'll tell you some form of the truth that will deceive you. That's what he uses. And he uses the truth. He says, He says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased the land. Well, put forth your hand and strike him and he'll curse you. God says, well, go ahead. You go ahead and do it. Let's see. And so he does. Then he even inflicts physical danger. Comes to the next thing and and, uh, Satan's in agony and, and his wife, who's really cool, says this. Curse God and die. That's her, that's her advice. Wonderful woman there. <clears throat> She's fed up with it, you know. Don't be around scratching yourself around here. Curse God and die. Job asks the most profound question. Listen to this question. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? Look at that. Are you, have you got a theology that is so narrow that all you can attribute to God is what's good? All you can see God working is through blessing. But when it comes to pain, you really can't see God in that? Because if that is the only theology you have, you will be alienated from God for most of your life. Because all of us have times of emptiness and suffering, chronic times. It's usual. So why did God do this to Job? He was a nice guy because he was not yet fully developed to the depth of his character. He knew how not to sin. He had kicked the sin habit. And he thought he knew all about God. He didn't know squat. You get to the end of this book and God's saying, Hey, Job, you know, were you there when I formed the world? No. How about when I made the big monsters, the Leviathan? Did you see me do that? No. How about when I shored up the sea? No. Well, surely the boundaries of everything you saw me create. No. Finally came to the end, and he looked at God and he says, You know, I've been thinking, I've been talking about a lot of stuff I really don't know much about. I, I, I didn't learn it until I saw your power in everything. I saw your power, and now I understand. So it wasn't. Job's goodness, but his understanding in the depth of his character that God wanted to develop. So that when Job loved God, and he did, he had someone deep and wonderful.
to love him. And not just this little robot that said, I didn't do anything bad today. See? Important. Third, quickly, God lets us go through suffering so that we can be courageous. There is nothing that kills fear better than coming out on the other side of pain and surviving it. You know that? Courage is never theoretical. Never. It's never, boy, if I'd ever get in this situation, this is what I'd do. You know? Then you're in that situation, and you're just about, well, it doesn't work out. I had a terrible thought. Quit that. It is so important to know that the reason people can be brave is because they've already been through it and they know they're going to survive. No matter how much it hurts, it's going to get over because hurt only lasts a while. That gives us courage and God wants us to have courage. He doesn't want us to live in fear. Like the story about the the, the guy who committed his life to Christ and he read in... in Romans 6, that if I die with Christ, and he took that seriously. And if I die with Christ, I'm going to be resurrected with Christ. That means I have eternal life. And so when I die physically, I'm going to be with God forever. And somebody literally the next week pointed a gun at him and said, I'm going to kill you. And the guy just kept smiling. He said, you don't understand. I'm going to kill you. And the guy kept smiling. And he said, what are you smiling about? He said, you can't threaten me with eternal life. It doesn't work. You can't threaten me with eternal life. There's no fear there. He'd already died. When we already go through it, we have courage. And one last category, the witness of our lives. You thought I was going to come up with another C, didn't you? I hate preachers that tie everything together in alliteration. The, u- the universe is not alliteration. It's not poetry. It doesn't rhyme. It doesn't come in a package. It comes in chaos. So therefore, I threw in a W just to be ornery. The witness of our lives. God lets us go through suffering. And our spiritual warfare will go on because we are being watched and read by other people. He doesn't just want to develop us. He wants to develop them. And you are being constantly watched by other people. And they are seeing what you're going to do in this circumstance. They know you're suffering. And they're going to say, I wonder if there's anything to this God stuff. I wonder if it really makes any difference. I'm going to watch her. I'm going to watch him because I know he says he loves Jesus. I want to see if this makes any difference in his life. Is there there's going to be any different reaction than there would that I... And if there's a different reaction, God has just worked in somebody's heart. It's easy to be a Christian when everything's going all right. It's not until the rough times that you can tell the difference. So God lets us go through those rough times. Therefore, when you are going through spiritual warfare, you remember that it's for a purpose. It's not an accident. God knows perfectly well what's going on. It's all a part of His plan for your life. And you've got to be able to say, God, take me and do with me what you want. I lend to you not only the good times of my life, but the bad also. I want you to work in all of those for your purposes. Would you pray with me? Lord God, every week we pray for something good to happen. Every week we we pray for healing and for for courage and for 
um, um, every blessing that we can think of. But seldom do we ever think of the ways those things really come and they trek between here and there or how you could work in our lives in, in negative ways. Help us to be realistic. Help us, Lord God, to open our lives to whatever you have for us, whatever Satan has for us, knowing that in everything you're going to work for good because we love you and we're called according to your purpose. And if there's anybody in here right now, Lord, who is unsure of their own calling and they would like to get on your side this morning to follow your son so that they know that that leash is put on Satan for their lives, let them make that decision right now. Let them commit their their lives to you and say, Lord, I do want to follow you. I recognize I'm a sinner. I've been leading my own life, but I want Jesus to come into my life, forgive my sins, and lead me to you no matter what it costs. Grow us up, Lord. That's a dangerous prayer, but grow us up so that we are more like your son. We pray in his name. Amen.